0: Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. We're going to be talking about manure application and management and you say man it's a little early to talk about manure. Not really. This year the growing season has gone so fast there's been enough heat accumulation that we're hearing from many farmers they are going to be cutting silage a couple weeks earlier or a week earlier than they normally would and that Starts the whole process here of, all right, taking silage off, the manure is going to be going back on there soon, and how exactly are you going to do it? So we're going to talk a little bit today about how how to manage manure and and how to manage those acres. Brian, I, I've had a couple really good conversations today just with a couple of our landlords about this subject exactly, and the last uh, conversation that I had, I, I just got off the phone here just a few minutes ago, and one of our landlords said, "You know what? You guys did a good job building up organic matter over the time, to- over the years that you farm my ground, and I want to keep it there. And it's kind of neat. You guys are taking silage, putting manure back. What is the long-term impact going to be? And we got talking just about our whole plan, and uh, it it it's really interesting. You have to have a plan when it comes to putting manure on, and if you're going to be harvesting alfalfa hay or harvesting corn silage, and you're taking off a lot of that organic material above ground, we want to make sure we don't have a negative impact long-term on the soil.
1: Okay, so let's start with this. The number one question we get is, how are we looking at manure? Like when we apply it on our farm, do we first look at nitrogen or is it phosphorus? What are we basing it on? So in other words, you're going to run into a limit. There's a limit on how much you should put on. And the question is almost always, are you looking at nitrogen or phosphorus? And I say neither. And they go, wait, what are you looking at? Salt. Salt is number one. And if you aren't getting your manure tested for salt, you need to. That's the most important thing. I I mean, I care how much nitrogen and phosphorus and the other nutrients are in there. But none of them is first on the list first on the list should always be salt. And here's why. Because salt kills. If you get too much salt out there, it's going to hurt your crop. We've run enough tests on this ourselves. And if you haven't done it, I'd encourage you to do so. Because I'll I'll put it to you this way. When we first started testing this, this was, I don't know, 20 years ago almost now. And we did some, some manure in a very deep band, like clear down to 20 inches deep. We did 6,000 gallons, we did 8,000 gallons, we did 10,000 gallons of dairy manure. Guess what happened? Every time the rate went up, yield went down. Now, I'm not saying it went to half or three quarters or anything, but it went down. So the first thing you have to look at is, how's my yield going to be year one? The next thing you have to look at is long-term buildup of the salts. Now, it's not a big deal if you're only putting manure on your ground once every other year, once every fourth year or something like that. But if you're doing it every year, now you really have to pay attention because if you overdo it a little bit this year, probably not bad. If you overdo it a little bit next year, probably not bad. But you keep doing that 4, 5, 10, 20 years, and all of a sudden, your soil is going to be dead. And I, when I say all of a sudden, I'm joking, okay? Nothing happens all of a sudden. When we're talking long-term impacts with this ground, it takes a long time to build up some of these problems, which then of course means what? It may take a long time to fix those same problems. So we're not usually super worried in one year about the sodium levels either. But uh, when you get to five years, 10 years, 20 years out, if you've been building sodium over time, that can be a real problem. So anyway, Those are some of the things that we would encourage you to take a look at when it comes to manure. The key thing, number one, is test the manure. Anything that's going on your ground, we encourage you, pull the sample yourself, have it tested yourself, so you're not relying on somebody else's data or anything else, because this is important stuff. If If you do it wrong, it could really be detrimental, but the flip side is if you do it right, manure can absolutely help you. Well, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now
2: mailbag time with Brian and Darren.
1: All right, Brian, apparently
0: there's a little uh, debate about some terminology that we use. We had a couple of responses. We were talking about honey vine milkweed uh, about, hey, hey guys, this plant is a native plant and you described it as an invasive plant um, and it also has some pollinator benefits and it might, might be a good plant to have around. So, First, I thought I'd talk about this invasive word. So invasive weeds are are defined as plants that establish, persist, and spread widely in natural ecosystems outside the plant's native range. And my understanding of that is it can be a non-native weed, but doesn't have to be. So it, it could be a North American weed, for example. Just normally we wouldn't see it in this area or in this environment. But I could be wrong on that. There are some definitions that say it's absolutely a non-native weed. I guess it isn't a big deal to us which, which way it goes. What we're meaning when we're saying invasive is, hey, this is a weed that spreads. It's tough to get under control, and it, it's going to cause a big problem. Just the general definition of a weed is a plant that causes economic loss, ecological damage, health problems for humans or animals or is undesirable where it's growing. And certainly some weeds are worse than others. Honey vine milkweed can be tough. I'm not right, saying again to take it out everywhere. Oh boy, there shouldn't be any anywhere out there. Just not out in our fields because
1: it's pretty tough to fight in those spots. So uh, anyway, that's well, okay. We get, we get a lot of emails that are similar to this and a few calls where people say, well, don't kill that. It's a, it's a good, good plant. Um, Corn is a good plant. Soybeans, they're a good plant. You know what? If they're in the wrong crop, I'm trying to kill them. That's just the way it works. So, if we don't kill the weeds on our farms, we don't make money, and long term, we're not here. So, we want to be here in the future. We need to kill the weeds. That's the way it goes. Now, for honey vine milkweed, if you want to have it as a landscape plant, you want to put it in other areas. We don't care. It's the same thing with corn and beans. If they're in the right spots, we love them. We just don't want them in the wrong areas. All right. Well,
0: something we do want in the right spot is manure. And on today's program, we're going to talk about manure application and management. We'll also be taking your calls and questions at 844 44 ag Stay tuned. When it comes
2: to protecting your field from disease and environmental stress, there's Revitech fungicide. <coughs> and there's everything else. When it comes to unparalleled power, there's Revitech and everything else. <coughs> and when it comes to speed and stamina, this is ReviTech. And this is everything else. Nothing else comes close to Revitech fungicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions.
1: Combined header loss means loss income. Hi, Greg Sauter from 360 Yield Center. It's common to see a two bushel loss per acre due to header loss. That's over $14 per acre. 360 Yield Saver replacement gathering chains cut header loss by cushioning the ear and by closing the gaps between the deck plates. 360 Yield Saver can cut header loss by 80%, adding $14 per acre. Learn more at 360yieldcenter.com.
0: back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're talking manure application and management on today's program. What a great tool for fertility manure can be if you do it right. So want to set you off on the right start with manure this year. We've got some great guests coming up on our show today. And of course, we're taking your calls and questions all throughout the show. If you've got some awesome strategies or some good tips you want to share with others, it's 844 844- 44 ag PhD got temple roads with us right now works with extreme ag farms out in Maryland temple I know in Maryland as soon as you say Maryland guys are like "Uh (laughs) uh-oh they're gonna be watching (laughs) those guys putting manure out there so I know you got got uh, people watching you what what kind of restrictions are there and and are they good maybe they're a good thing
3: um there there's a lot of restrictions so you know I guess the Delmore of a you know Delaware Maryland Virginia we're the second biggest poultry producer in our area. So there's a, there's a lot of um, poultry manure out here. And yes, they do watch us. You know, they, we're, we're really close to DC, Baltimore, all of the major cities. And we're laid right here on the Chesapeake Bay and on the ocean. So um, they really do look at us. Now we have a nutrient management system that's been in place for quite a few years. I think it's 23 to be exact. But we have like a, a phosphorus management tool that um, that I guess it's the university's tool, and that kind of tells us what we can and can't put on. So one thing that I can tell you that make sure that you do always take a manure sample. You know that that manure sample is just as important as your soil samples are. So in this phosphorus management tool that that, that they have, and it's what limits us is how much nitrogen and phosphorus that we can put on, they calculate, you know, they take your soil type, you know, if you've got really low CECs, sandy soil, they take your soil samples, and then they, they, they take your location to the watersheds. You know, uh, how close are you to the tributary? Do you lay right on them? And they come up with an algorithm with the phosphorus management tool of a high, medium, and low of how much phosphorus and nitrogen that you can put on your 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 farm. and it's a really good thing because you know if you didn't take your manure sample, you don't really know what you're putting on. So we yes, we take a manure sample, and yes, we go by what's kind of available the first year. Um, one of the things that we make sure that we do is you know we always when we spread our poultry litter, you know we work it in with a vertical tillage tool within twelve hours of um spreading the manure if possible and the reason that we do that is it's still considered no-till if we do it with a vertical tillage tool but we don't lose that ammonium form of n that's right away and if we put on two and a half to three tons of chicken litter depending on the analysis of the of the uh, manure report we could lose you know 30 40 pounds of n right there out of the gate um and everybody always talks about, you know, phosphorus doesn't move, phosphorus doesn't move. Well, it does move when you look at low sea, 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 sea soils that we have here, when you are right here on the, the, the Bay's edge, and when you have heavy rainfall, Yes, that can wash right off. So we try to incorporate our manure, no different than incorporating chemicals or whatever. We get a better reaction to it. We also put a bunch of um, fossil stabilizers on them. So when we do those things, we try to increase our efficiency all the time. And it's something that we've been doing for years.
0: You know the other thing that you're doing, Temple, is just trying to get a lot of production If you can extract a lot of those nutrients out, you've got less likelihood of them ending up in the water or ending up somewhere else so how do you how do you manage all that and raise high yields at the same time your your yields just keep getting better all the time,
3: well, you know. <laughs> you take it back to you know everything that we talk about is this you know this systematic approach you know it's no different than you know my management of our manure you know between incorporating it and putting some kind of some type of phosphorus efficiency agent on there um we use a lot of nutri charge products products from that end um We also use PGRs. You know, people don't think of that like that might be a tool, but, you know, we use MegaGrow in-furrow with everything we plant. It doesn't matter if we're using it on wheat, corn, soybeans, whatever. If we can build that root structure, we can keep that manure, that runoff, and we can get more efficiency out of it. So it's all about this whole efficiency. You know, and MegaGrow has been one of our major tools that we're using that we can build this massive root system that can pull it all in. You know, and that's what's important from the beginning to the end. It's, it's, it's not just one thing. It is a complete tool.
0: Well, paying attention to the details, understanding what's going on out there, measuring things—it's—it's uh, it's just all great tips. Whether we're in Maryland or farming anywhere, we're talking to Temple Rhodes here. He works with the Extreme Ag Group and and farms right in that in the Delmarva, putting on poultry litter and managing it well. Temple, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the info today, and good luck for uh, as you head in towards
3: harvest. Okay, thank you guys. Appreciate it. You bet.
0: Got Gordon with us right now. He farms up in Michigan. How you doing, Gordon?
3: Doing
4: pretty good. Last couple days it felt like fall. I don't know if I'm ready for summer yet. <laughs> well, hey, we got
0: hundred degree temperatures coming here, Gordon. So we can send some of those your way if I you'd like. I
1: have a feeling it's going to be heading his direction and <laughs> not all that long. So next week it'll probably turn for you, Gordon. So hey, I hear you got a question yes, about uh, spray adjuvant with glyphosate resistant crops.
4: Yes, i got some glyphosate-resistant soybeans that are probably at R2, R3, mm-hmm. and yet i got a few lambs' quarter escapes I'd like to get uh, with glyphosate, but yep. and then I'd like to add something like methylate seed oil or crop oil, so I'm just to yep. kind of give myself a better chance of dealing with it. But I yes. did not know if that's acceptable or not.
1: Yes, it is. So. I'll just take you back, let's say 10 years ago, Monsanto pushed hard to have guys put nothing in with Roundup other than non-ionic surfactant. And the reason why is because there when you put crop oil or methylated seed oil in, you will see a little bit more leaf burn. And they just, I mean, a lot of people said, well, we don't like the leaf burn. The thing is, there's always a trade-off there. I'll take a little bit more leaf burn for better control on the weed. And especially when we've had a hotter, drier summer in most areas, what you're going to find is a thicker, leaf cuticle. So there's wax that builds up on the leaf of that weed the longer we get into the growing season, especially when it's hot and dry. So yeah, this late in the year, crop oil, methylated seed oil, not a bad choice there. Most guys will go crop oil rather than the the methylated seed oil, slightly less burn, but either way you go, it's not going to hurt anything other than you will see some speckling on the leaves. Now, Let me ask you this. Are you going to add anything else to the solution other than Roundup? I assume ammonium sulfate and either crop oil or methylated seed oil.
4: I wasn't planning to, no. Okay,
1: that's all I needed to know. The reason why I'm asking is if, let's say, you're putting something real hot in. You know, we used to talk about, like, old Lorsban insecticide that's gone now. Or let's say it was foliar fertilizer or something like that that's going to heat the solution up already. Uh, then we start to get a little more hesitant about it. But in your case, no, nope, crop oil or methylated seed oil will be fine.
4: As you can imagine, these lambs' quarters are pretty mm-hmm. tall if they're sticking up above the soybeans, So that's just another concern. You know, they're, they're not small, which are easier to kill. So that was kind of another reason why I wanted to add an edge
1: so, Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, as an agronomist, I have to tell you, too, uh, with Roundup, the last label date or uh, stage, I should say, is R2. So that's full flower. So if you're potting, okay. I, as an agronomist, I cannot tell you, go out and spray that. You're right. technically off-label. So, (laughs) I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna leave it at that, Gordon. What what was that?
4: Yeah, I uh, you know I read my uh, label of of the glyphosate product I bought. It's a generic, but I I couldn't see any limitation on
1: there. All right, I wasn't sure. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, with all glyphosates, it's okay. R2, but I'll tell you what, um, I, I haven't read every label on every glyphosate <laughs> product, so you may yeah. be right, I don't know, I just always yeah. have to caution people, just, you know, d- d- don't do something the label isn't going to tell you to do. But otherwise, right. yeah, as yeah. far as the question about uh, methylated seed oil or crop oil, no problem.
4: Okay. All, all right. right. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much.
1: You bet. Thanks, Gordon. Good luck out there. Yep. All right, once again, we are talking manure application and management today. But if you've got any questions, like Gordon just did, you can give us a call, 844 44 AGPHD. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or find us on Twitter, AGPHD Media, Darren Hefty, or Brian Hefty. Stay tuned, we'll talk manure right after this.
2: Are you ready? We got the need. The need for seed treatment. Start Start your your engines. Ready, set, Intego. Intego. Start your season strong with Intego Sweet Soybeans, Intego Fungicide Soybeans, and Intego Sweet Cereals OF from Valent USA. Ask your Valent rep about seed treatment solutions or visit valent.com slash Intego. Always read and follow label instruction.
7: When nematode pressure mounts, seed-applied Trunemco provides assurance. Growers using Trunemco are seeing a difference from early plant vigor to improved soybean and cotton yield. Impressive results are everywhere, and we want to hear about yours. You could win $20,000 and be named a Trunemco Elite Grower. Don't delay. Contest ends October 31st. No purchase necessary, void were prohibited, see full rules. Learn more at newfarm.com USST.
0: As fall approaches, we start thinking about some of those mini, mini jobs that are hard to do on the farm in the fall. One of them being manure application. I know on our farm, that's a big one for us. We've got a neighboring dairy. They like to get manure out, get those pits emptied out as best they can in the fall. Uh, If they wait and try and do it in the spring, you just don't know what you're going to get. A lot of times, fall's quite a bit drier in our area. Spring can be wet, and we know in between there, the grounds are going to be frozen. So to to buy some more options, and and also just, you know, for us as farmers, if we get that manure out in the fall, works pretty nice for us. Then in the spring, we can just worry about planting. So we'll talk about manure application and management. If you've got questions, our phone lines are open at 844 Forty-four Ag PhD. There's a lot of work done, a lot of research work done on manure applications. We got one of those guys that's leading the charge uh, on nutrient management, Glenn Arnold from Ohio State, with us right now. Glenn, thanks for joining us.
4: Oh, glad to be here today.
0: Well, it's not going to be too long, and we're going to be spreading manure out on our acres. Uh, what What are you working on this year, and and what would you like to share with growers as they start thinking about those fall manure applications?
8: Well, I think here in Ohio, harvest is probably going to run a little bit late this year because planting was a little late, and it was dry early, so the corn was uh, not quick to develop. So I think it's going to take a lot longer to dry down this fall than some of the falls that we've experienced. But I think what everybody runs into is, uh, you know, when the fields get emptied, and they get crops harvested, that's usually a sign that we better get that manure hauled. So I think that, uh, you know, for us, we do a lot of that. We've done a number of years where we've done fall strips of manure on 30 inch centers and then we planted directly into that in the spring and the corn has really really responded well you can't do that in the spring you can't put manure down in strips and plant directly into it but if you put those strips down in the fall it seems like it's getting us about 20 bushel more than uh we thought we would see i guess
0: Wow, that is awesome. And I agree with you. The spring application, uh, that can be a little bit risky. Is it salt or what's the big difference that that the plants just can't handle in the spring?
8: Well, yeah, it is salt. You know, you've got uh, it's too hot, you got nitrogen, then you got your salt. So all your nitrogen, phosphorus and potash are all salts. So when you uh, put a seed into that manure zone that's just too much. I know I talked to some folks from Canada at the North American Manure Expo last week and they said they had done some strip tills where they put that manure down in the spring and they were only getting about 30 percent of the corn to emerge through the ground and and so if you compare that to our fall strip tills uh, we had absolutely no no loss of emergence or or corn vigor and uh, those 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 strips have just always been strong. They always seem to run about a one to two growth stages ahead of the spring-planted and uh, commercially side-dressed fertilizer. So, be something to work on. It's just it's pretty fun to. Oh, we're wrapping up our third year of that that research plot this fall, and we finally get to our harvesting time. Yeah,
0: yeah, I look forward to getting to harvest just to see how all the different trials turned out and, and see what new information there is for, for anybody to just tune in. We're talking with Glenn Arnold here at Ohio State University. Uh, Glenn, one other thing I, we see a lot in Ohio and other areas around the country is the introduction of cover crops. And a lot of guys have said, man, mm-hmm. if I can put manure on, put a cover crop out there, uh, I'm getting really the best of both worlds. What have you seen with these cover crops in relation to manure application?
8: Yeah, that's a great point, and that is that, uh, you know, when you when you look at swine manure, that's what you had mentioned earlier. Our swine manure runs about ninety five percent ammonium nitrogen, and ammonium nitrogen is something that's readily available to a crop, and also will rapidly convert over into a form that'll be leachable in the soil. So that's why when we put manure out in the fall, we we expect we're only going to get maybe. 50 percent of that nitrogen to stay there for spring if you put a cover crop out it'll grab most of that nitrogen and convert that into a you know organic form it will be a root or a plant or a leaf or some tissue of some sort and then that'll be a slow release fertilizer over the next three four or five years in that field so cover crops and manure are kind of made for each other they really are
0: Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. And we get uh, cover crop established in the fall, get a nice big root mass underneath it. We can really extract a lot of what could potentially be leachable. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Uh, Glenn, thanks for the work that you guys do. Look forward to seeing what kind of results you have out of your trials. Uh, Like you say, three years into these trials, getting some really good data. uh, I encourage everyone listening Mm -hmm. check that out uh, at OhioStateUniversity.com. Hey, Glenn, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. I think I said Ohio com, but just I meant Ohio. I meant, <laughs> no, was Ohio, amazing. State, I meant like... Ohio State University's <laughs> website. Sorry. Uh, let's let's head over to Iowa State University. We got Dan Anderson with us. Dan, how are you today?
7: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. We're talking about manure application today, and and certainly the state of Iowa's got its share of livestock and, and you guys do so much work on manure putting manure where it's needed and encouraging growers and and leading growers in the right direction on how to get the most out of it. Where do you start, Dan, with with growers that say, okay, I need some help. I want to best manage my manure applications this year.
7: Well, it always starts with get a good sample, right? We need to know what's in it so we can value it as a fertilizer. I think one of the interesting things we have going on, a project that I'm working on is uh, working with the John Deere and a case manure nutrient sensor so real time we can get an estimate about what's flowing on the field sort of going from that one sample that's a liter in size represents a million gallon pit to, to hopefully a, a lot more frequent sampling where we can Maybe vary the rate as we go to, to maximize it, but getting a good sample is always the place to start. Yeah,
0: that and that is a challenge, and we talk about it with grain as well. When when farmers are trying to pull a good grain sample, and it's it's tough to be perfect on that. But like you mentioned, if you've got something that's constantly monitoring, and we've done a little bit of work with some of these sensors too, uh, that's really encouraging for us going forward. Where where do you think they're at? Uh, does does anyone have this really figured out? And you say, man, uh, cases got a great sensor you guys should look at or John Deere or the jury's still out at this point?
7: I mean, I think the jury's still out. Uh, both companies are pretty comparable from the data that I have on them. Uh, if you're hoping like it's dialed spot on, it's going to be perfect for my manure. I have a couple farms where that's true. And then I have some farms where you look at it and yeah, it didn't work quite as well as I wanted. So it is calibration based. And, and I think everyone's working on getting better calibrations to really represent what's going on. But they're getting close. I think I'm pretty optimistic that it's a a nice tool to have in our pocket and going forward, it's going to offer value for us. Now, figuring out how to capture that value is is a little bit harder, right? How do we vary how much nitrogen we want in this spot of the field versus the next spot of the field? And uh, I think that's a work in progress, but I'm, I'm optimistic. The sensors look like they have promise to me.
0: You know, as we, we get good samples and get an idea of, okay, what's in the manure, one of the challenges that a lot of growers will have is what's going to be available this year? And and I know that's not exactly uh, a perfect science either, but, but you have some pretty good guesses. And, you know, when you're looking at those samples, a lot of times they'll estimate what first year is going to be. Do you find those to be pretty accurate?
7: Generally, they're, they're not too bad. It varies a little bit from lab to lab. Uh, Using a lab in your state, they often tailor their recommendation to sort of what the university guidelines are in that state. So if you're using a lab in your state, it's probably pretty close. Uh, Iowa State does have a recommendation. I heard Glenn just a little bit ago said manure in his state averages about 95% ammonium nitrogen when we put it on. In Iowa, we feed a little more distillers. Uh, Our state average is a little lower in ammonia. We're about 80% ammonia nitrogen when we put it on, 20% organic. But that's still easily available and gets there in the first year. But generally, the lab's or at least in the ballpark of what I'd like to see.
0: You know, that is a great point. Uh, the manure is going to be a product of what animal it's going to and what that feed ration is going to be. And absolutely, from one operation to the next, from one region to the next, those those diets are going to change a bunch. So it makes sense the manure is going to change as well. Uh, I absolutely, ask Glenn, and
7: especially on oh. something where you use maybe solid manure on a cattle farm, How often you like to bed for a bed pack barn really impacts that carbon to nitrogen ratio and how quickly it's going to become available, right? So that's one where I'm more hesitant to hazard a guess until I see what you're working with.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And uh, yeah, there is so much variation out there. We do encourage, uh, just like Dan Anderson here with Iowa State is saying, uh, get good samples. And and the more samples you pull, uh, you can see if there's some variance out there or if things are are mixed up fairly consistently. So you get an idea of what to do and how to use that in the most
7: responsible way.
0: Dan, thank you so much. Really appreciate the work that you're doing. And thanks for always being so generous with your time coming on our show.
7: Always love to hear what you have to say. Thank you much.
0: Talking about manure application and management on today's Ag PhD Radio Show. Great to get that strategy in place going into fall. We'll take your calls and questions as well at 844 Ag PhD. We'll be right back.
2: When I step on someone's farm, I feel like I've already walked a mile in their shoes. I spend spring on the tractor and fall in the combine. I see the excitement in my kids' eyes on our farm, but worry if there's enough of it for all of them. I make sure everything Case IH makes meets the challenges farmers face, because I face them too. My name is Ryan, I am a
0: farmer, and I work at Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers.
1: Corn rootworms are called the billion-dollar bug for a reason. If you don't control the adult populations now, their offspring will cost you later. Stewart EC Insecticide from FMC offers a unique mode of action that delivers fast and long-lasting residual control of corn rootworm beetles and
2: other tough insects. Choose Stewart EC Insecticide from FMC.
1: Always read and follow label directions and precautions for use.
5: What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, you're getting a -a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting a crop nutrition plan that maximizes your fertilizer applications from every drop, all while accounting for your management practices and the products you're already using. But it's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Get more durability for less
2: downtime with Soil Warrior strip tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at
5: SoilWarrior.com. Get an extra semi load out of your grain bin. The end zone from FarmShop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13 percent. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi load. Visit
1: FarmShopMFG.com for more. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today just talking about manure application and management. Manure is a tremendously valuable fertilizer product. Many people over the years have viewed this as a waste product. It's not. If it's used properly, it's amazing for the next crop. But here's the second thing that I wanted to to really highlight today. Number one, of course, was salt. Okay, make sure you test for salt. Make sure you don't overdo it on salt. Midwest Labs will tell you 500 pounds of salt per acre per year. And that's if you get a fair amount of rain. Probably better bump it down if you don't. 500 pounds of salt per acre per year. Now that's not sodium. Okay, Sodium is not salt. So a lot of people assume sodium is salt. Sodium chloride, okay, or sodium sulfate, I mean, those would be salts. Sodium by itself is not a salt. What we're talking about here are salts. Salts, by the way, are leachable. So if you have an issue with excess salt in the ground, you simply put more water to it and you fix your drainage. You do those things, salt will disappear fairly quickly. Anyway, the second thing I guess that I wanted to highlight here is simply manure does contain pretty much every nutrient, but that doesn't mean that it is exactly by itself, the right fertilizer for your corn crop, your soybean crop, your wheat crop, or any, any crop you want to raise. It's got the nutrients. It just doesn't have the right levels. For example, on our farm, we supplement our manure every year. We get dairy manure. We supplement every year with more phosphorus. And he might say, wait a second here, I thought everybody was having a problem with excess phosphorus. Well, all I know is we have to put more phosphorus on. We're removing more phosphorus than that manure has in it. So if we don't put more phosphorus on, we start having issues like almost immediately. So if you don't test the manure, you may not realize this. And there are a lot of people that we work with that they go, oh, I'm just putting manure on and I think I'm good on everything. And then we get the soil test and we go, whoa, whoa, you got this problem over here. Oh, I thought the manure had everything. Well, it does have everything. It just may not have the right levels of everything. Okay. So that is a real key. Don't just assume that manure is going to be your only fertilizer, your complete fertilizer, whatever. Here's the next thing. Let's say that you got a thousand acres of ground and you have, 300 acres worth of manure. Are you better off to put 300 acres on at the full rate and leave the other 700 and then rotate it around so like once every 3 years every all, all your fields get manure? Are you better off to put on a third of the rate on everything? Are you better to put on let's say enough so you know a cut enough rate so you could go half your acres one year, half the next year? Um, honestly, I'd Almost rather split it. Now I realize this is more work and nobody's probably going to do this, but if I could get a little manure on all the ground every year, that would be great because now I've just added a little bit of organic matter, a little organic material, a few micronutrients, uh, some beneficial microbes, whether it's bacteria, fungi, whatever. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there. So I would just as soon add a real low rate. The other thing about that is now I've kept my salt level down. I haven't overdone it on any one nutrient. And so ideally that's what I would prefer. The flip side of that is here's what ends up happening in a lot of operations. They say, okay, I've got a thousand acres of manure and 300 acres, um, you know what, let's just push the rate a little bit. This is part of why manure management plans ended up coming into being in a lot of different states out there. Please don't push the rate. Please don't do something that's going to put the environment at risk. But the other side of it is it's a valuable fertilizer you don't want to lose. So if you can get the right amount on the right acres, you're in good shape. But yeah, seriously, you got to take a look at that, that salt thing and at least build up long term of sodium and stuff like that so you're not doing harm to your ground. Those things are really important. Uh, Darren already talked a little about cover crops and our guests, um, so I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on that, but I would say we like cover crops if the ground is going to be sitting bare for a couple of months and that's what we end up with here on our farm when we're cutting silage especially this year when the silage cutting is going to be early we're way ahead on heat units things are going to be done way earlier than normal so getting some cover crop out there I think will be good and then it will help suck that nitrogen up in the in the short term and hopefully release that nitrogen either late next year or in future years all right let's get back to the egg phd mailbag
0: Alright, got a question that came in from Aaron here. He said, I farm on Maryland's eastern shore. It's my second year of farming uh, after starting my own operation, growing corn and soybeans. We're all dry land here, Uh, but this one particular field just doesn't seem to yield like I think it should. Our CEC is anywhere from 3 to 7, so we're farming a combination of a screen door and a 90 grit sandpaper. Uh, We get 50 inches of rain a year. I'd like to see what recommendations you have to help improve it. My yield goals right now are 150 bushel corn and 40 bushel beans. I know, based on what I've heard here, low magnesium yep. and high calcium is something you're probably going to say. Well, uh, we okay. do use cover crops. Last year was rye. This year we're we're doing vetch and wheat. And uh, you can take a look at my samples. They're malic three analysis. Okay.
1: Now, when we talk about cover crops, and it, well, you mentioned vetch, and what was the other one? Wheat. Yeah. Okay. So vetch, I'm not as worried about, but with that wheat, or a lot of guys will do rye, um, you're going to suck up all kinds of nitrogen. And when you do that, you can actually make your next crop nitrogen deficient if you're not managing that right. So that's going to be one of our concerns always. And especially when we start talking light soils, um, you need to put out, okay, so like in this case, his cation exchange capacity is 5.7. So we're going to tell you the most nitrogen we want to see in that soil at any one time is 57 pounds, which means you're probably going to need to put nitrogen on three different times for your corn. And you're probably going to go, whoa, that's a lot of work. Come on, do I have to? Yes, you have to. All right, next thing is every time nitrogen's going in that ground, a little sulfur needs to go with it and a a tiny little bit of boron. Not lots, but just a little bit. Your ground's too light. You have too much rain. It's not going to hold nitrate, sulfate, or boron. The next thing that's different for you than most people we talk to that have heavy soils and have less rainfall, you're going to have to put on more potassium. Now, it's misleading because when you look at your percent base saturation K, it's 4.8%. That is not bad. Problem is, you have light soil. You're only at 106 parts per million. That is bad. That is, you're not even close to having enough there. So, If it's me, and I'm in your geography, I'd be shooting for much higher yields, and how I'm going to get there is I'm going to put potassium out in front, uh, so before planting, but then I'm going to come mid-season with more potassium. Now, you, you mentioned low magnesium and high calcium. That's the next thing. Yes, you need magnesium. You do not have high calcium. You have 972 parts per million on calcium. You're fine. Your calcium's fine. Yes, your base saturation's 85%. It's nothing to worry about. When you put more potassium out there and more magnesium out there, you're going to be okay. It's going to be fine. So anyway, yes, you definitely need more magnesium out in that ground, though. A lot of times what we're talking about with magnesium and potassium, that ratio, we want to be in the 1-to-1 to to -to 2-to-1 range. So in other words, you got to get your parts per million on magnesium up similar to where your parts per million would be on potassium. If you do that, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape. So those are really the key things. Other than this, I don't see a test on zinc, manganese, iron, copper, boron, soluble salts, sodium, nitrate. You see where I'm going with this. Uh, We'd really like to see a complete soil test if we can. Uh, The one really good thing you have on here, by the way, is... 223 parts per million of malic 3 phosphorus. Now, if you're if you're listening to the show today and you hear, "Oh my gosh, 20, 223 pounds, parts per million of, of phosphorus, that's way overdoing it." No, not necessarily. Keep in mind, malic 3 phosphorus is similar to the strong Bray test. I was just talking to a manure management expert earlier today. And we were talking about, okay, well, what are kind of the limits that people will talk about around here? And he started talking about weak Bray and Olson tests. And I go, okay, well, how about Malik-3? Well, a lot of people don't even look at that in the northern United States. I go, well, they better start looking at it because that's what we're using is Malik-3. And that number is usually double what a weak Bray test is going to show you. So anyway, yeah, good level of phosphorus, though. Nothing to get too alarmed about. All right, stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of your questions next get uniform control in your fields
2: with trusted hard-working lucinto fungicide control the toughest diseases with a dual mode of action fungicide that consistently outperforms the competition and field trials lucinto fungicide from fmc works over time for lasting control to help improve crop yields talk about getting the job done Visit your FMC retailer or lucinto.ag.fmc.com for hardworking control
5: in your fields. Always read and follow all label directions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit mybayerplus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details.
6: Your farm data platform might let you manage your fertilizer plan by helping you set sample points, determine management zones, or create fertilizer recommendations. With Verify, you can do all that. But what Verify does that no one else can is take yield data straight from your combine Correlate this info to soil test points and immediately generate variable rate fertilizer maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether you want to build soil levels, balance your field for uniform nutrition, or maintain fertility levels by simply applying what you removed at harvest. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Sign up for your Verify account today at verify.com and keep your farm moving. That's v r a f y
7: com. From mowing to loading or even moving snow, a John Deere Compact Utility Tractor is ready for any task. During the CNB Summer Blowout event going on now, get yours for zero money down and 0% interest for 84 months. This offer won't last forever, so check out your nearest CNB or learn more at deerequipment.com. From machine
6: storage buildings and farm shops to dependable buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit mortonbuildings.com. Insects have rained since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings. Experience the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean
5: aphids. Extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all,
6: but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. Welcome back. You're
0: listening to Ag PhD Radio. Broadcasting from the Morton Studio and we're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag. If you have a question, you can email us radio at agphd.com or you can just give us a phone call, 844-44AGPHD. Got this one in from Scott who said, guys, what's the best herbicide for controlling wild licorice in my meadows? It's flowering now, of course. The burrs aren't hard yet, but it's really taken over my meadows and currently very thick in my aftergrass. I want to spray now, and we'll spray again after frost or freeze if I have to. What would you use? Well, first of all, wild licorice is a perennial, deep taproot, uh, can be toxic to livestock, so you want to get it under control. Tordon etiquette can work if you can spray that in your area. Milestone can work at the full rate uh, you could just use Clarity if you want something with no soil residual, but you got to use two quarts. I thought this was interesting. North Dakota State did some work on that, brand. Two quarts it took. Normally we think one quart of Clarity is pretty good, but it took two. Uh, and I know there are some guys using Clopyrrolid and Triclopyr, but in my mind, if I could use Tordon at a quart, that's what I would pick. So, yeah, there are some herbicides you can spray, and I agree with you. I would get after it right now and not wait. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, get this one from Mike. He said, guys, uh, we're, you were talking about soybeans once they're flowering, and you mentioned some pests that can impact yield. Talk about pollinators. How do you control pests without harming pollinators? I got a list, Brian. You can add to this. See what you think. First of all, spray before flowering, if you can. Yep. When plants aren't flowering, we just don't have pollinators out there. So if we can spray before flowering, that's always the best time. The other thing you can do is spray field borders to stop bugs from coming in. So let's just say we get soybeans that are flowering and you get grasshoppers creeping in from the borders, we'll spray the borders. So hopefully you don't have to spray the whole field. That would be a good thing. There are some newer products like Safina and Transform that control target bugs like soybean aphids, for example, without harming pollinators. Use those when you can. They're pretty cost effective. They cost a little more than some of the other insecticides, but not too bad. Uh, in corn, we're using Bt traits in our corn. That reduces our need for insecticide. We don't have Bt traits right now in soybeans, but in any crop that has a Bt trait like that, use it. Then we don't have to spray for bugs over the top in many cases. The other things you can do is spray early in the morning or late in the evening when the pollinators aren't out. That's usually a good strategy. Uh, obviously, you got to talk to folks that have bees if there are beehives around you, maybe they can move them or cover them for the time uh, that, that you're going to be spraying to protect those bees. And then finally, just one last note, neonicotinoid insecticides get a bad rap, uh, but we don't suggest using them foliar. If we use them as seed treatments, we don't have any impact on these bees. They're very, very minimal. So use neonics as seed treatments when you can. They also have
1: um, pretty good activity on soil insects, so like them. Okay. Let me be a little more harsh. On the neonics, stop using them post. I, I ran into a couple of agronomists the other day that we were talking about soybean aphids, and they were telling me, yep, they were using these products that had neonics. I'm like, guys, stop. Please don't do that. That's bad for all of us. You're going to kill bees. And then we're going to end up getting that the neonics banned. And, and then what do we have? Now, and... I mean, there's just, there's nothing else you can do for seed treatment. And you can say, oh, taraxin, wheat, or, I mean, yeah, you're going to kill wireworms. Are you going to be as broad spectrum? No. Are you going to be as cheap? No. So we want the neonics. We like gaucho, poncho, cruiser. We're not seeing the bee kills with the seed treatments. Where we're seeing the problem is the foliar application. Stop. Quit using those. Anyway, uh, the other thing is that I, I guess above all else... We don't encourage you ever to just spray an insecticide without scouting the field. Please scout the field. See that you're at an economic threshold. If you're not, then don't spray. And that's how you protect the pollinators also. So here's the thing, too. And look, let's say that there are some pollinators. Let's say there are some good bugs, period, out in my field. Do I feel bad if I kill them? Yeah, I do. But at the end of the day, if I'm at an economic threshold and things are looking like, oh my goodness, I think I'm going to have an explosion of soybean aphids and whatever beneficials aren't keeping up with it and eating the aphids, it's an economic decision at that point and I choose, I got to make more money. Now, here's the other thing, because when you hear that, you go, well, you don't care about the environment or, you know, any of these pollinators or anything else. Yeah, I do. And here's the way I look at it. I look at my state. We have roughly 50 million acres in my state. I'm spraying 80 today. Okay, so I killed pollinators on 80. And I and again, if we use all these other methods like Darren was talking about, hopefully we don't have to kill any, any beneficials or any pollinators. But... I always kind of fall back on, hey, um, if I'm only doing this sporadically. I'm only doing this because we need to do it and the beneficials are not keeping up. And there are so many more acres that are untreated out there. There are plenty of pollinators, plenty of beneficials. And if you don't believe that, just look the very next year. You'll see all kinds of them right back in your field. In fact, even a few weeks later, a lot of these insecticides, they're only going to last a week, maybe two. So a lot of the harmful bugs will be back, and a lot of the beneficials especially will be back. So it's just we got to get things under control if we are at economic threshold levels. Otherwise, your bottom line suffers. And again, like I said earlier in the show, we we sometimes have to do things that— there, it's some tough choices on the farm. We got to spend a little more money on weed control or whatever it is, because if we don't do those things, we don't make money. And if we don't make money long term, we're not here, and that's bad news. So we want the we want the world to have food, so we need to be here. So we got to do some of these things, and uh, and make some of those tough choices sometimes.
0: All right, speaking about choices, get this question from Jason down in Nebraska. And I think this is a great one, Brian. He
1: said, All right. When- All our questions, Darren, from our listeners are great. So well, go uh, ahead. Okay, it's
0: good timing <laughs> here too. So he said, I'm talking about my wheat stubble chemical program. I'm in western Nebraska, fourteen to sixteen inches total mm-hmm. rainfall. Uh, after harvest, about two to three weeks before we would be planting winter wheat, uh we like to go out there and break the green bridge between crops. Usually yep. we're using Roundup 240 and dicamba, that kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, then we come back in early October on ground that, that isn't seeded to wheat, and we're spraying Roundup and a pound and a half of atrazine to kill volunteer wheat and annual grass, and this lasts us into the spring. <sighs> now, I know you guys don't recommend that. Nope, we don't. And when you do use atrazine, you recommend low rates. Yep. So, I'm wondering, what would the program be that'll be just as effective as using Atrazine in that October spray program? It's working for us, but I'm looking for new ways to do things. It's going to corn, right? Going to corn or Milo. Okay
1: corn or myelin. So that can make a difference. But yeah, what we would use is a group 15 herbicide. So we're talking harness, surpass, outlook, dual, Zidua, something like that. And then that's going to hold down grasses for a long time. But here's the other thing. When we start talking about wheat and volunteer wheat, that can get a little tough. Atrazine isn't going to be perfect on it either. Uh, So we got to make sure we keep the roundup rate up. Now, in your area, it's going to be warmer much later in the season than what we're going to deal with, and heat is usually a big factor. In other words, if it started to get real cold, then your on of performance suffers, then you have to really bump the rate, and that can be a little tough. So, yeah, a lot of times what we're doing to hold grass down with fall applications is a group 15 herbicide. So if you want something that's going to be amazing on that, that wheat, um... You know, I don't know even what that is exactly because I've never found anything that's going to be 100% perfect. Here's the next thing if you want, you can certainly continue using some atrazine. We just get worried about the amount of atrazine that you're using. But the, here's the good news you don't get a lot of rain. And you go, wait, that's not good news. No, it is, in that you don't have near as much risk for having groundwater contamination. That's really the only reason why we're talking about not using the atrazine. We just want to make sure it doesn't end up down in the groundwater. One last thing. When you said two to three weeks before your winter wheat, and he mentioned Roundup, but then he also mentioned 2,4-D and dicamba. Both 2,4-D and dicamba can be hard on winter wheat if you spray it too close in front of planting. If you don't have rain, the 2,4-D and the dicamba don't disappear super well, so I'd be real careful about what you're using there. And if you start getting too close, use sharpen instead. That's perfectly safe uh, for the wheat as long as it's used pre-emerge. And it's going to give you better residual than what the 2,4-D and dicamba will. So I would at least consider that. we got a lot of guys now in wheat that have switched over from 2,4-D or dicamba over to the sharpen and have been happy.
0: Hey, thanks for the question, Jason. We really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.